1095, Aulnay, France. A fiery sun burns in the summer sky, scorching the land of Aulnay. The castles, villages, and houses all broil as yet another year of drought withers the cornfields, vineyards, meadows, and all green places. Meanwhile, a strange procession is taking place. The Viscount of Aulnay, Chalo VII, and some of his subjects march barefoot to the Abbey of Saint-Jean d'Angely. They trudge forward under the weight of a large, ornately decorated box, a ferretry, a type of portable shrine, inside of which rest the dry, desiccated bones of Saint Just. The Viscount sought the aid of God in ending the five-year-long drought. He hoped the Lord would be pleased with his procession and command the rain to fall on Olney once more. Yet the heat was unbearable, and they were but mortal men. So they stopped at the chapel of the Priory of Saint-Julien to pray and rest. The Priory was a dependency of the great Abbé Dames, the Abbey of Ladies, the first Benedictine nunnery of the region, built some fifty years prior by Geoffrey II, Count of Anjou, son of Falk the Black. As the men prayed, the ferritry containing the bones was placed on the altar. Yet, after their prayers, though the Viscount and his men were ready to continue their procession, they found, to their shock, that when they attempted to lift the ferritry off the altar, it had become immovable. Horrified that they might have somehow offended God, the Viscount and his men began to scourge themselves, lashing their backs bloody with whips in penance for whatever sin had fixed the ferritry to the altar. Yet the ferritry would not budge. It was at this moment that the prioress of Saint-Julien interceded. She chastised the Viscount for his recent oppression of the tenants of Saint-Julien, and she predicted that the ferritry would not move until the Viscount renounced his pretensions to rights over them. The Viscount Chalo agreed immediately and swore to abandon his rights, whereupon they found that the ferritry had become so light that they could scarcely feel its weight, and the procession continued to Saint-Jean with the greatest joy. Before summer's end, Chalo, Viscount of Volnay, went before the great altar at the Abbeo Dame, where he confirmed his renunciation of rights to dues from the tenants of Saint-Julien. And some weeks later, he heard that the Pope himself had traveled through the region. As the Holy Father went from town to town, railing against the great lords for their relentless attacks on church property, the Viscount Chalo felt such deep shame that he would have done anything to rid himself of the guilt. Most fortunately, God provided, and the Pope's message did indeed include a path towards remission of such sins. And thus it was that Chalo found himself sewing a cross on his chest, a physical representation of his vow to travel east on a great armed pilgrimage to Jerusalem. The world Chalo knew, which demanded that a man of his station engage in brutal warfare far from home, was one of newfound prosperity and growth. For three centuries, Europe was blessed with warmer, longer summers and milder winters. It was this prosperity which Chalo had wished to benefit from when he terrorized the tenant farmers of Saint-Julien, extracting as much as he could of their surplus crops. 
for whatever prosperity the warm centuries brought to the farmers of medieval Europe, was more often than not leached by their betters, who built the massive stone cathedrals and castles that still dot the landscape to this day, and who engaged in crusades in search of glory in this life and remission of their sins in the next one. It was this prosperity which had fed the workers who laid the stones at the Abbey aux Dames, which had fed the skilled workers that had spent their youth learning how to carve intricate designs in stone or craft high-quality armor instead of pulling the plow, which had fed the prioress and the pope and all the other church members as they whiled away the hours pondering how best to worship God instead of scattering oxen shit in the fields, which had fed Jalo himself as he learned to ride a horse and wield a sword instead of twisting his spine carrying the harvest to market. 1095 was the last year of drought. In 1096, heavy rains brought about a plentiful harvest. To Chalo, it must have seemed that his renunciation and crusader vow had worked. He collected as many dues as he could from his subjects, likely in silver coins. And the Viscount set out towards Jerusalem. Soon to be soaked in Muslim blood, the swords Chalo and his fellow crusaders carried with them had been forged in the heat of the medieval warm period. And welcome to History of the Ultramare, episode 2.11. Here comes the hot weather. I hope you all had a lovely end to 2021 and start to 2022. Here's hoping the forces of climate change, political instability, and rampant disease that threaten to tear asunder the very fabric from which civilizations are woven can be kept at bay for just one more trip round the ball of fire. Uh, yeah, I saw Don't Look Up. Why do you ask? I also saw Dune. God, that Timothy Chalamet's got some range, don't he? Anyway, let us not dwell too much on catastrophic imagined futures. Instead, let's travel back in time for some much-needed escapism from the woes of our own day. Today on History of the Uchimera, we'll be talking about... Uh, let me just check my notes. Oh. The forces of climate change, political instability, and rampant disease that threaten to tear us under the very fabric from which civilizations are woven. That's right, today's episode is a spiritual successor to episode 1.10, and will also focus on the environmental and ecological pressures driving historical events. Now, if you haven't heard or just don't remember episode 1.10, in that episode, we talked about the decline of many states in the eastern Mediterranean particularly the Byzantine Roman Empire, the Fatimid Caliphate, and the various post-Caliphate states in the Middle East. In the Fatimid Caliphate, droughts caused by a low Nile led to famine and disease, and there were also cold snaps in southern Italy and throughout Iraq, Iran, and Anatolia, all of which weakened these regions and opened the established states up to invasion. By the Normans in the case of Italy and the Seljuk Turks in the case of Iraq, Iran, and Anatolia. At least, that's how the story goes as according to The Collapse of the Eastern Mediterranean by historian Ronnie Ellenblum. 
as we talked about then, environmental history is tricky. When you zoom out and try to look for those long durée pressures acting on history, it can be hard not to fall into a deterministic point of view, removing any agency from human individuals, rendering them mere automatons reacting in predictable ways, lacking foresight or the ability to adopt systemic changes in the face of possible climate collapse. Yeah, I saw Don't Look Up. In reality, life is much more complicated. And when talking about environmental shifts, we have to take into consideration how changing conditions interacted with existing ecological practices, and how human populations were able to adapt to fluctuations in temperature, rainfall, or whatever else Mother Nature threw at them. Which brings us to today's topic. A phenomenon known as the Medieval Warm Period. It's a pretty self-explanatory term. A period in the medieval era that was warm. However, surprise, surprise, the term is a bit controversial. It's actually a replacement term for what used to be more commonly known as the medieval climate optimum, because this warm period is linked to a perceived growth in Europe. Thus, it was an optimal climate. And it is now also known as the medieval climate anomaly, because it seems that though the weather might have been in general warmer in Europe, other regions of the globe experienced different types of climate shifts. For example, the medieval warm period actually overlaps with the period of droughts and cold snaps that Ellenblum describes, a situation that was definitely no optimum and not really warmer either. I will be using the term medieval warm period, because that's what's most applicable for most of Europe, which is the region we'll be focusing on today. Our view today will be something like a slow zoom in. We'll start with an overview of the environmental data, then focus on the particularly economic consequences in Latin Europe, and then the specific situation that might have contributed to the First Crusade. Let's get into it. Environmental data. How the fuck does it work? Well, one source of environmental data is historical sources. That's most of what we discussed back in episode 1.10. People write about the kind of weather they're experiencing and they often make comparisons. Someone might say that snow fell for the first time in living memory, or that a particular type of tree was found growing in a region where it hadn't been growing before, or they might document the yields that they were receiving. In episode 1.10, the flooding of the Nile was a key source, as Egyptians have kept detailed measurements of the Nile's river flow since the dawn of history. However, there are other methods. We can classify historical documents as a direct method of gathering evidence, along with the instruments we use nowadays, thermometers and shit like that. Prior to the modern era, though, our fancy-schmancy instruments only work to collect indirect data, proxy data. The main ones are ice and marine sediment cores, as well as tree rings. Ice cores are collected by drilling into the glaciers in Arctic, Antarctic, and mountainous regions like the Andes and Tibet. The water molecules in these cores can be used to determine temperature changes by measuring the ratios of oxygen and hydrogen isotopes, and the air bubbles trapped in the ice can also be used to determine things like the amount of carbon dioxide in the air that Peter the Hermit and his followers were breathing. Marine sediment cores, meanwhile, can tell us specific information about the composition of lakes or other bodies of water, providing us with information about seasonal changes in rainfall patterns, as well as helping to corroborate temperature data. 
the use of tree rings for dating, known as dendrochronology, as well as for the study of climate, known as dendroclimatology, was pioneered in the western United States in the 19th century and 20th century. Though the notion that tree rings reflected the conditions trees grew in goes back centuries, and was first clearly articulated by Leonardo da Vinci. Comparing tree rings allows us to form a database containing patterns that can be used to date any sort of wooden material found at archaeological sites. For the northern hemisphere, tree ring data goes back almost 14,000 years. Tree rings can also be used to determine climate information, and particularly solar activity, by measuring radiocarbon concentrations. All this data, and other more situational measurements, can be fed into increasingly powerful computer models that can compare modern measurements to ancient ones and attempt to fill in the gaps and provide a more detailed look at climate. Yes, science! But none of this is perfect. Science is a liar sometimes. It'd be great if all the data lined up perfectly, but they rarely do, and the nature of the information we have means there are substantial gaps. It also requires dedicated effort to study and try to correlate all this data, and then to try to turn this data into a human narrative, to attempt to describe how humans adapted to, benefited from, or suffered on account of the environment around them. We struggle to understand how climate affects the modern world around us with mountains upon mountains of evidence and data. It's infinitely more challenging to do so in the context of not only a different world environmentally, but a different human world, economically, ecologically, and socially. So all that to say that the evidence is imperfect, but the more work that's done, the clearer the picture becomes. And for Europe, which is a region that has been extensively studied, there are a few things that are generally accepted, though experts often disagree about how these accepted facts fit into a larger picture. In the last few decades, it's become increasingly important to compare our current era of extreme global warming to past events of warming. And what's been found is that they are completely different. Recent studies show that these variations in temperature prior to the industrial era are not global phenomena. It wasn't the whole world that got warmer during the medieval warm period and then colder during the Little Ice Age. Those patterns are limited to Europe. However, nowadays, an increase in temperature is indeed a global occurrence. A 2019 study titled No Evidence for Globally Coherent Warm and Cold Periods Over the Pre-Industrial Common Era published in Nature magazine by Rafael Newcomb, Nathan Steiger, Juan José Gómez Navarro, Jinghao Wang, and Johannes P. Werner, opens by stating the following, quote, Earth's climate history is often understood by breaking it down into constituent climatic epochs. Over the common era of the past 2,000 years, these epochs, such as the Little Ice Age, have been characterized as having occurred at the same time across extensive spatial scales. Although the rapid global warming seen in observations over the past 150 years does show nearly global coherence, the spatial-temporal coherence of climate epochs earlier in the Common Era has yet to be robustly tested. Here we use global paleoclimate reconstructions for the past 2,000 years and find no evidence for pre-industrial globally coherent cold and warm epochs. In particular, we find that the coldest epoch of the last millennium, the putative Little Ice Age, is most likely to have experienced the coldest temperatures during the 15th century in the central and eastern Pacific Ocean, 
during the 17th century in northwestern Europe and southeastern North America, and during the mid-19th century over most of the remaining regions. Furthermore, the spatial coherence that does exist over the pre-industrial common era is consistent with the spatial coherence of stochastic climatic variability. This lack of spatial-temporal coherence indicates that pre-industrial forcing was not sufficient to produce globally synchronous extreme temperatures at multi-decadal and centennial timescales. By contrast, we find that the warmest period of the past two millennia occurred during the 20th century for more than 98% of the globe. This provides strong evidence that anthropogenic global warming is not only unparalleled in terms of absolute temperatures, but also unprecedented in spatial consistency within the context of the past 2,000 years. End quote. So, keeping in mind that global tendencies are really just an aberration of modern anthropogenic climate change and that otherwise you really have to go region by region, here's the basic story of climate in Western Eurasia and Northern Africa over the last three millennia or so. The period of classical antiquity from around the 8th century BC to roughly the 6th century AD appears to have started during a period of cooling for the region. The colder weather seems to have brought heavier winter rains to much of the southern Mediterranean and spurred efforts by the Phoenicians and Greeks to colonize these regions. Sometime in the 9th century BC, Phoenician settlers from Tyre in modern Lebanon made a home on the eastern shores of the Lake of Tunis, a lagoon connected to the Gulf of Tunis and the Mediterranean Sea beyond. They named their settlement New City, or in their Semitic language, Something like Qart Hadasht. Passing through the distortions of Etruscan, then Latin, and then descending into French, and then being loaded into English, we now call this new city Carthage. In legend, under the guidance of their quasi mythical founder, Dido, the Carthaginians developed a massively profitable trade empire built on the axis of trade from Iberia to the Levant. But after centuries of domination over the Great Sea, the Carthaginian Empire came crumbling down. A trilogy of wars, known as the Punic Wars after the Latin word for Phoenician, ended in 146 BC with the nearly 1,000-year-old new city sacked and demolished, and salt scattered over the ruins by an upstart new kid on the block, Rome. Would it shock you to know that the rise of the Romans was tied to a climatic shift, taking the wind out of Carthaginian sails, so to speak? While Roman historian Livy relates earlier tales of the Tiber River which flows through Rome freezing and beech trees growing in the region of the Eternal City, by the time of Rome's triumph over Carthage, beech trees were considered mountain vegetation, and the Tiber's last freeze ever had occurred some 30 years prior, to be replaced with winter flooding. Northern Africa and Iberia remained super productive regions, but with the warming of the Italian peninsula came increased productivity in that region. In fact, the warming may have been what made the Carthaginian general Hannibal think it was a good idea to take his elephants over the snowy Alps, which might have been even frostier in earlier years. I wouldn't chalk up Rome's eventual victory over Carthage entirely to a change in weather, but the increased productivity can have hurt. By the 1st century BC, warmer weather was clearly in effect. Roman historians noted that olive and grapevines were growing far norther than they had previously. 
Perhaps the increased productivity of these northern regions was what encouraged the eventual Roman conquest of Gaul. Warm weather would continue in Europe up until the end of the 4th century AD. Because of the close ties between this period and the age of Roman dominance over the world of the Mediterranean, it's generally known as the Roman Warm Period. But what goes up must come down, and that includes both thermometers and empires. Starting around the 4th century, the climate, at least in northern Eurasia, turned not only colder, but drier. Within the next few centuries, the Roman Empire collapsed. Again, though we have the climate information and the historical record, pairing the two can be difficult. Though many have tried to point to specific factors in the fall of the empire that were caused by changing weather patterns. Droughts in central Eurasia seem to have led to not only the fracturing of Silk Road trade from China, but driven nomadic migration of groups such as the Huns and the Goths. And well, we know how that turned out for the Western Roman Empire. And the changing temperature may have even played a role in the spread of Yersinia pestis, the bacteria that caused not only the Black Death, but the plague of Justinian, and decimated the Eastern Roman Empire which was soon to be nearly entirely swept away by the Muslim Caliphate. The cold weather that started around the 5th century seems to have continued in Europe, lining up more or less with the period of time known in popular history as the Dark Ages. But around the 10th century, something changed. The temperature began to rise up until around the 13th century, the medieval warm period. And we'll come back to the economic and ecological changes we can observe during this period in one second. But for now, to finish up our climate story, the medieval warm period was followed by the Little Ice Age, a cooling period in the North Atlantic region. The harsh cold of the late medieval, early modern era in Europe actually inspired an entire genre of icy, frosty landscape paintings, known in Dutch as Eisgezicht, literally ice sight. Typified by the 1565 work, Jagers in the Snow, Hunters in the Snow, by Peter Bruegel the Elder. Apologies to my Dutch-speaking friends for butchering your language, by the way. The Little Ice Age came to a sudden airbag-deploying stop as the Industrial Revolution got going. After this point, no doubt about it, global temperature started an upwards trend unlike any seen before. And in this case, there is no doubt as to the cause or the global nature of the phenomena. The graph of North Atlantic temperature over the last few centuries is often compared to a hockey stick. Slowly declining temperatures over the Little Ice Age and then a sudden near vertical rise. The medieval warm period was much less intense, and the effects were probably much subtler than what we're in the middle of now, but they were substantial. Again, again, though we've got the climate evidence and we've got the historical record, it's unclear how exactly they fit together. British climatologist Hubert Lamb was among the first to place climate change in its rightful place as a key factor in human history. He developed many of the early theories associated with both the medieval warm period and the Little Ice Age. In the second edition of his book, Climate, History, and the Modern World, Lamb says the following, quote, Thus it seems that the great period of building of cathedrals in the Middle Ages, and the sustained outburst of energy of the European peoples, which produced, among other things, the more controversial activities of the Crusades, coincided with an identifiable maximum of warmth of the climate in Europe. End quote. And that's what we really know for sure, that this period of warmth identified by Lamb 
lined up with what he put as the sustained outburst of energy of the European peoples. Here's the thing. The exact details of this outburst are a bit hard to pin down. Just like environmental data, economic data, especially for the pre-modern era, also often relies on proxies. Archaeological data like coins as well as other goods, and of course we have historical data, but people aren't really clear, they don't really describe their economy in really logical ways. And again, trying to work all this into a clear image is hard. In medieval Europe, Chris Wickham devotes an entire chapter to what he calls the long economic boom. He opens the chapter in the following way, quote, Here is what we know about the economic expansion of the central Middle Ages, in a nutshell. Across the period 950 to 1300, the population of Europe multiplied by up to three times. There was an extensive process of land clearance, with woodland and rough pasture converted to arable to feed those new mouths. Towns greatly expanded in size and number throughout the continent, making goods, above all clothing and metalwork, with an artisanal professionalism that had been much rarer earlier, and selling them far more widely. The use of coins in this period, overwhelmingly in silver except in Byzantium, became much more common in daily exchange. Agricultural specialisms began to develop. The movement of goods and people became, overall, far more extensive, particularly after 1150 or so. And the exchange complexity of Western and Southern Europe began to extend to the North as well. By medieval standards, this was an economic boom. A much larger population can simply mean that everyone gets poorer. Not in this period, however, when there is no doubt that Europe's economy was much more complex at the end of it than at the beginning. Although there are signs of some regions reaching a population ceiling in the early 14th century. Here, however, is what we don't know. Why that demographic expansion actually began and when, how it really related to the economic changes of the period, when long-distance exchanges of products became important, Italian merchants could be found in Flanders by the 1120s, but when did their presence become economically significant? How much any region in Europe really gained from such exchanges, apart from the two great urban epicenters, Flanders and Northern Italy, which social groups gained most from the growth in economic complexity, and whether that changed? How far production depended on peasant, i.e. large-scale, rather than aristocratic, i.e. restricted demand? Or the relative importance of agricultural products as against manufactured goods in the European market, seen as a whole? We do not even know such crucial basic details as what goods were actually made in 12th century Latin Europe's largest city, Milan, and where they were sold. When it was that English wool became the basic raw material for the Flemish cloth towns, let alone how and why, or why it is that the development of silver mines in this period a literal license to print money, can so curiously seldom be seen to have had much of an effect on the prosperity of the wider region in which the silver was. Our lack of knowledge here has several causes. It is of course the result of problems of evidence, for these are things our sources very seldom tell us directly about, at least before 1300. We will never get the full picture here, in fact, although future archaeological work will certainly help with some of it. But other causes derive from the failings of historians. One is the decline in fashionability of the large-scale serial work on medieval archive sets, which is the only way to get at patterns of development reliably. Many current accounts present as fact claims that go back to speculations made by pioneers in economic history in the 1960s, and often well before which have never been seriously tested. 
Another, an important one, is the fact that few people, except in some very localized contexts, have ever seriously tried to create an economic model of how the medieval world worked and fitted together. In most cases, instead, they have borrowed models from the industrialized or industrializing world and applied them to a historical period where things worked very differently, with at best discussions of how particular medieval socioeconomic structures or political policies blocked a development which, supposedly, might otherwise have been more similar to that in, say, 1750. There are problems that cannot be solved here, obviously, but they have to be borne in mind as we proceed. For the fact of this economic expansion is of essential importance if we want to understand the whole dynamic of medieval society in these central centuries. It must be recognized how far basic data and interpretations are missing. At every stage, we have to see that economic changes had important consequences, while recognizing that we often cannot tell exactly how. But it is still better than trying to characterize the social, political, cultural shifts in Europe without taking that economic context into consideration at all. End quote. Wickham gets at a lot of things here, but it's that last line that I feel is the most important takeaway. We can't really understand why or how Latin Europe sent hordes of invaders turned migrants east to Jerusalem without taking into consideration the context they came from. And I personally am already disinclined towards believing in coincidences, so I'm definitely not one for thinking that a period of greater warmth, an economic boom, and the beginning of concentrated efforts to conquer faraway lands are three phenomena that just happen to line up chronologically by chance. Still, we don't have all the time in the world to explore every nook and cranny here, but I want to make it abundantly clear that the details are all disputable, and I'm going to be simplifying a lot. I'm by no means an expert in either climatology or economics. And as Wickham points out, the field lacks a lot of the basic frameworks that would be needed to talk about all this without any doubt. I have been and am going to be relying primarily on three sources. The first two I've already mentioned. Chris Wickham's Medieval Europe, as I mentioned, Chapter 7 is devoted to the long economic boom from 950 to 1300. Although Wickham does not discuss climate at all, he focuses on the consequences of the increasing population, without getting into how that increase came about. The second is the second edition of Hubert Lamb's Climate History and the Modern World, published in 1995. Now, that's almost 30 years ago, so even though it is an exhaustive review, it's centered primarily on Europe, and it lacks some of the newest data that's come to light. So to balance that out, the third is a bit more recent. It's Brian Fagan's 2008 book, The Great Warming, Climate Change and the Rise and Fall of Civilizations. Fagan focuses on just this period of time, but discusses how it was experienced in various different regions of the globe, combining some of the indirect data we have with the historical record, in those regions where we have a surviving historical record. He mostly comes to the same conclusion that I mentioned earlier in the 2019 Nature article, that the term warming is not applicable to what was happening at the global level. Whatever was leading to warming in medieval Europe had different effects, sometimes even cooling, in other regions. Coming back to medieval Europe, how do the environmental and economic changes we see happening connect? Well, here the biggest factor is population growth. It's easy to see population growth as both a consequence of the warming that Lamb wrote about and a cause of the economic boom Wickham describes. 
the link between the two phenomena. The warmer weather led to food surpluses. In some cases, the growing season for cereals may have increased by as much as three weeks, and late spring frosts that could kill off crops mostly disappeared. Though famine still occurred, there was a general increase in the level of trust that farmers could have in their crops. Over time, as less people died and more infants survived, the population of Europe began to trend upwards, and the world of the high medieval era that we frequently see represented in media was built on the back of this growing population. We're going to focus on two of the most relevant factors for us, changes in land use and the increase in coinage, as well as the effect that these developments had on medieval European society. Here's the thing about an increasing population. You can't really stop it. More mouths is more mouths, and though there were surpluses, the runaway effect that population growth tended to have meant that later generations could very easily suffer from famine if there was just one bad harvest. So medieval farmers were forced to get creative. There were two main manifestations of this creativity. One was cultivating lands that had previously been unusable. Here, the warm weather helped again. Land at higher altitudes became usable. But that wasn't enough, and soon medieval Europeans were forced to seek out other solutions, such as the most extensive project of land clearance that had ever taken place in the region. As Fagan puts it, quote, The scale of deforestation during the warm centuries is mind-boggling. In AD 500, perhaps four-fifths of temperate Western and Central Europe lay under forests and swamps. Half or even less of that coverage remained by 1200, and most of that clearing took place during the medieval warm period, in a massive onslaught on the environment. End quote. This deforestation massively changed the face of Europe, which had been basically a huge forest beforehand. And much of the pastures and grassland that's associated with Europe nowadays actually came into being during this time period. But just increasing the quantity of land wasn't enough. Medieval Europeans also had to find a way to increase the quality of the land they had. And that's the second big shift we see. They needed to specialize. See, not all land is made equal. Some dirt is just better suited to growing grapes than wheat, for example. That is, you can get more, pound for pound, of wine out of it than bread. Farmers increasingly turned to agricultural specialization to get the most out of their land. And specialization took other forms as well. For example, the development of better farming implements depended on the training of skilled, dedicated blacksmiths and other specialists. But specialists of all kind, either skilled workers or agriculturalists, were in turn dependent on food surpluses and a more robust system of labor exchange. We've talked before about how Latin Europe was not really big on coins. Instead, barter systems prevailed. This was not going to work going forward. See, trading in kind is super limited. You can only sell grain to someone who needs grain. So farmers are often forced to grow a variety of crops themselves. You can't reliably trust that you'll be able to barter for what you need. In short, this sort of cash crop production is risky, and it can be even riskier to try to engage in some endeavor that doesn't directly produce food. Unless you have money. Like, not even you personally having money, but just like the mere existence of money in your society. We're so used to living in a monetized economy that it can be hard to imagine living without it. But 
Just imagine that whatever labor you produce has to be directly exchanged for what you need with the person who produces that kind of labor. You're a blacksmith who wants bread? Well, go try to sell a plow or a sword or whatever to the guy who produces wheat, and then to the guy who produces yeast, and then, I don't know, butter? I don't know how to bake fucking bread. And the reality is, it was probably difficult to be a blacksmith, unless you had a way to store your labor, sell a sword, collect coins, and then use the coins to buy what you want. Early medieval European society was only slightly monetized, and this put a limit on how complex production could be. Whether as a product of the increased population or out of necessity to find a way to make specialized agriculture possible, or more likely than not, a mix of these and other factors, silver mines began to pop up in Europe during the 10th century. And the archaeological record begins to include larger and larger quantities of silver coins. By the time of the First Crusade, most of France was switching to payments in coins instead of in kind. These coinage systems were tied to the sudden arrival of towns. It was in this era that the medieval town with its market actually became like a, a, a thing. Though towns and markets had existed before, they likely weren't the nuclei of exchange that they became in this era. Towns were also centers where specialists, like blacksmiths, could congregate and trust in sufficient demand for their services to survive without having to farm themselves. The spread of specialization in towns created vast networks in which you could conceivably drink wine from southern French grapes, wear sweaters made from English wool, and eat bread made from Polish grain. This connectivity had huge implications for society as well. It was a highway for information and customs to spread. Where once the Carolingian Empire had been forced together by the conquests of men like Charlemagne, there were now ties that spread across Europe at multiple social levels. This led to an outpouring of culture, especially from the 12th century on. Shortly after the First Crusade, the historical record starts to explode with all manner of documentation and even art like the Chanson de Geste. It is this economic and social development that we talked a bit about in episode 2.8. It's what attracted Jewish migrants to the Rhineland, where they settled in the new bustling towns and cities of the region, and to some degree at least, participated in the social developments of the age. Now, it would be easy to look at the efforts to which medieval Europeans were going to acquire better land and see the conquest of Levantine fiefs as a driver for crusaders. After all, if you recall from episode 2.6, Robert the Monk quotes Pope Urban saying, The land which you inhabit is closed off everywhere with the encirclement of the sea and mountains. The numerous are confined, no copious wealth abounds, and the soil scarcely provides enough nourishment. As well as, Set out on the road to the Holy Sepulchre. Take the land from that wicked people and make it your own. That land which God gave to the children of Israel, as the scripture says, is flowing with milk and honey. Jerusalem is the center of the world, a fruitful land before all others, as if it were a second paradise of delights. But let's not go too far. Robert is writing after the fact, remember? And including his own spin on events. Some folks have already settled in eastern lands, whether or not this was a driving factor before the crusade is hard to pin down. Also, not that many crusaders actually stayed in the east, most returned, and we have very little evidence that acquiring land was in the minds of most crusaders. As Jonathan Riley Smith puts it in The First Crusaders, 1095-1131, quote, Rising population, it is maintained, was forcing landowning families to take measures to prevent the subdivision of their estates, 
either through the practice of primogeniture or through a primitive method of birth control, by which only one male in each generation was allowed to marry. These family strategies destabilized society and led to a surplus of young men with no prospects, for whom adventure, spoil, and land overseas were attractions. Individuals were encouraged to make themselves scarce, and crusading was an appropriate way for someone to reduce the burdens his family was facing. This explanation of recruitment is intelligent supposition, but no more than that, and the evidence does not support it. There is not even any justification for the proposition that younger sons went on crusade more commonly than older ones. The picture of a family strategy centering on the departure of unwanted males is probably a myth, because having a crusader in it must have cost a family more than it would have had to spend if the individual had stayed at home. And even if anyone had been fool enough to think in 1096 that crusading would be a profitable and relatively painless venture, such an attitude would have been considered madness after the experiences the early armies underwent in Asia. End quote. Uh, he's referencing the Peasants' Crusade there at the end. Still, land is mentioned as a motivator by contemporaries. Eckhart of Aura, for example, says, The West Franks were easily induced to leave their fields, since France had, during several years, been terribly visited now by civil war, now by famine, and again by sickness. Acquiring land was at least part of what motivated some crusaders, guys like Bohemond of Tarento and Raymond of Toulouse, as we'll soon be seeing. And more than a specific goal, we can see crusading as one more example of creativity in the face of an ever-changing world. Medieval Europe was in flux. Farmers were adopting farming techniques that their parents would never have even thought of, and folks were moving to the newly constructed towns to strike out for a life as some sort of specialist instead of farming, like their ancestors had done since time immemorial. Late 11th century medieval Europe was full of people taking huge risks. And whatever role it may have played in the why of crusading, the changing circumstances of medieval Europe were at least crucial to the how of crusading. Crusaders were forced to somehow transport wealth with them, either in the form of coins or often silks, which were lighter. But to acquire these things, they needed to have ways of transforming their wealth in land or goods of other sorts. And here, the newly developed coinage system was key. Backed by coins, medieval Europe was able to develop a system of debt and credit agreements, without which not many crusaders would have been able to fund their armed pilgrimage. The type of loan we see crusaders using was called a vifgage. That's French for living wage. The way it worked was the crusader would sign over rights to a property of theirs to, more often than not, a religious institution. The lender would then collect dues from the land until the debt had been paid, usually specified with some amount of time. The benefit of this kind of loan was that there was no interest collected, so it didn't fall under the strict definition of usury, which was prohibited by the Bible. More often than not, the loan was based on land, but other types of property also worked, including rights, like offices and rights of justice in market disputes. Like I said, most lenders in this era were abbeys and churches. So, for example, a Norman lord named William Lavast gave his land in an arrangement of this sort to the Abbey of Fécamp for three silver marks. And Bernard Morel gave a farm to the nuns of Marcigny with an odd condition that half of the profits made from the farm should be set aside for him when slash if he returned from Jerusalem. 
this sort of arrangement was often risky for noble families, because in many cases, only the borrower themselves could recover the property that had been vifgaged. And so, if they died, the property risked falling out of their possession for good. This eventuality, along with just direct sales of land, constituted a bit of a windfall for the church, actually. In fact, as I mentioned in the opening, the early 1090s were years of drought, and that made the apparent value of lots of territories appear much lower. When the rains returned the following year, many abbeys and nunneries were pleased as punch to be able to make back their loan much quicker than they had expected. This kind of loan, these vifgages, this kind of complex negotiation, it just hadn't been possible in the early medieval era. It's easy to wax poetic about the rejuvenation of Europe during this era, but to be honest, the truth is most people were probably worse off. Peasants definitely were. Specialization came at the cost of a very diet. Instead, folks ate tons of grain that they bought instead of the variety of products they had once produced for themselves. But even if you don't view them as necessarily positive, you can't deny the innovative developments that the warm centuries brought to medieval Europe. And one of those innovative developments was crusading. We spent a good deal of the beginning of this season talking about the various factors that led to the First Crusade, and they all go back to the changes we've been talking about today. The Reformed Church was a product of this new religious network and the spread of monasteries throughout Europe. The increase in nightly violence that the church was trying to control was in part due to the desire of the nobility to acquire new productive lands. And as we've seen, the logistical demands of this expedition, as well as the rise in pilgrimage, I should add, was dependent on the new European economy. An economy that was a direct response to the population boom of the medieval warm period. Though this take deserves to be nuanced and caveated, here's the TLDR. No warm period, no population boom. No population boom, no economic boom. No economic boom... No crusading. Next time on History of the Utremer, we zoom back in as we start to focus on the political leaders that will soon dominate the Army of the Cross and eventually become the founders of the Utremer states. We'll be starting with everyone's favorite, the grisly old man of the bunch, the first to sign up to the endeavor, Raymond of Toulouse the one-eyed southern Frenchman who was rumored to have lost his other eye fighting with a Saracen in Jerusalem over an abusive tax to enter the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Some said he still carried the eye with him on his return trip. Yes, we multiply. Get it? You, like, you know, the population of Europe is multiplying because of, you know, hot weather? Yeah, you get it.